You know, I think it stands to be said that sometimes there are benefits to late stage capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically just better Arizona and better movie theater seats. I don't think we have anything else. But we do have that. (laughs) Worth it. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that we are about to rediscover together. Accurate. Yeah. Subtle changes. Peter, do you approve? Boy, I just got really uncomfortable. (laughs) Something did not go according to plan. (laughs) He's twitching. The boy's twitching. (laughs) So I'm Sean Hartman. Uh, I'm one of the three hosts that normally do this show. I'm joined by two of our top contributors our regular co-hosts one might call them we have petty change financier peter cook that title is very petty (laughs) well as long as you own it and uh, of course we have youtube channel curation influencer jeremy ruggles please follow my friend's channel follow your friend's channel yes chanel so jeremy it's been a, a hot minute since you have led the charge on one of these episodes true i believe you're doing that for this very episode are you not i am what uh what song are you gonna play for us off what album by what artist well i was gonna play cross country but no the median value was too high on it oh we're gonna get into that right away so then open that can then we're gonna open this can then i was like how about this jacques brel record i have yeah. Turns out it's a compilation, so it's not good enough. And you didn't know about the fact that it was a compilation or could even find the value I don't of it read because French. you don't even know how to use the internet. I, this motherfucker right here is like, how do I find the value on Discogs, the most used site in the vinyl community? I'm a podcast host about collecting vinyl and I can't even use Discogs. Please help me. Here's a picture of my record. Someone else look up the value for me. Sean Hartman, internet lover. I hope I never need your help, Sean. <laughs> I would gladly offer it to you. That's fine. You, you can ask me for help any old day, Peter. Good to know. I have brought a record by Henry John Deutschendorf Jr., Who's better that? known as Johnny D., better known <laughs> as Mr. John Denver. Ah, I know oh. one of those better than the other two. The album is Farewell Andromeda. It is 1973, and we're going to play the first track on this album, I'd Rather Be a Cowboy. Do it. Sounds like a country song. Jesse went away last summer couple of months ago After all our time together It was hard to see her go She called me right up when she arrived Asked me one more time to come oh, Living on an L.A. freeway Ain't my kind of having fun I think I'd rather be a cow 
We were just beginning It was such an easy way Laying back up in the mountains Making songs for sunny days She got tired of picking daisies Cooking my meals for me She can live the life she wants to Yes, it's all right with me I'm coming at this record with very little knowledge of John Denver, Jeremy, other than probably a couple songs here and there. Uh, what year was this record? This record was 1973. Okay, that checks it out. It was his seventh studio album after his first one in 1969. Seventh studio album in like four years? Yeah. Oh, he's cranking them out. Yeah, through the early and on into like the late 70s, he was cranking like one or two a year every single year. Bang, he's like guided by voices or something. Yeah, he was the original guided by voices. <laughs> That's the connection. <laughs> I, the production definitely, uh, this is maybe heresy, but I definitely was kind of reminded of James Taylor a little bit in the, just I was thinking it was early 70s and... Like I said, I'm coming at this not really having knowing the name John Denver, but and, and knowing leaving on a jet plane mm-hmm. and a hand, maybe a handful of other songs. But so is this album before or after some of his biggest hits? This album was sandwiched right in his sort of golden era. He kind of came to fame from the song "Leaving on a Jet Plane" when Peter Paul and Mary. They work with the same producer that he uses, and they made that song a number one hit, but it wasn't a hit for him originally. Okay. He was like right in the middle of a golden period of every album hitting hard and singles, and then right in the middle of that period, he put this album out that doesn't have a single like hit song on it. Um, And it has, that's kind of why I picked it, is it has like sort of darker shades and the side of John Denver that is not that like saccharine, sweet, gold-hearted country boy. Because as we'll get into later, John Denver was not that. We're going into the dark side of Denver. So this is kind of like his uh, Nebraska darkness on the edge of town moment? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good... Yeah. Because it's still got some rock vibes. Point. It's not like full on desolate dark production, but it's it's not the cheery, completely light atmosphere. Yeah, no. The production is like really not out of line with anything around it. It's more so just the songs themselves and the a lot of these songs lack like super catchy melodies and they just have like a darker tone to them than most of his other work he put out because he didn't really go back to a darker sound at all. He like, it didn't hit. And then he like went back to making golden hearted pop music. Huh? What is the name of this album again? This is Farewell Andromeda. Andromeda. See that word always has kind of a ominous tone to it to me, but I'm not, I think there was a Michael Crichton book called like the Andromeda strain, but I don't even know if I, 
actually know what that word means. Is it a plant? Andromeda is the nearest galaxy to our galaxy. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. So on that note, let me uh, dive into a little personal history, the first of which Mr. Henry John Deutschendorf Jr. was born on New Year's Eve 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico. Really? Yeah. Roswell. He's an alien. Yeah. (laughs) If you follow like alien stuff, the Roswell incident, 1947. Yeah. You ready for more? Yeah. Bring it on. John Denver's father, military guy who flew experimental aircraft. Experimental, you say? Yeah. And broke some speed records for flying very, very fast planes. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I'm picking up what you're putting down here. It's pretty much science now that John Denver was an alien. Or at least like part alien. Maybe his dad had some uh, affairs in space, if you know what I mean. That's possible. Okay. That's uh, probably the most likely scenario from the evidence I've heard. It was uh, originally, I'm leaving on a UFO. Yeah, the jet plane is a metaphor. I feel like I just, I'm going to jump ahead. I was going to talk about this later, but it feels appropriate now that he was on the board of the National Space Society for like 20 years, and he was given the NASA Public Service Medal. And an even crazier thing, he was a finalist to be the first citizen in space for NASA's like citizens in space program, which was the SS Challenger that blew up. Back in 86. Huh. And also was a card-carrying member of the Illuminati, right? I can neither confirm nor deny those details. (laughs) Jumping back, though, John Denver talks about his father being in the military, and he was... It sounds like his father himself was an alcoholic and moved the family around a bunch and was not emotionally available to the family and John and his siblings. Uh, Moved them to like Tucson, Montgomery, Alabama, Fort Worth, Texas, to Japan, Oklahoma. Is this the first list of cities we've had on this show? (laughs) Yes. Instead of people he's worked with, here's all the cities he's been to. Isn't this a great list, guys? Yes. (laughs) On one of his tours, he went to. (laughs) He ended up in Denver, I'm guessing. So he talks in his autobiography about how he learned to like read a room and read people and how to um, likely his foray into music was trying to like make friends or like find a way to connect with people quickly because he's like moving from place to place and he categorizes himself as like a very introverted not especially social person to begin with so I think that helped shape who he became mm-hmm. he started playing guitar at 11 he started playing in clubs in college he <laughs> replaced Chad Mitchell of the Mitchell Trio <laughs> Which begs the question if it was still the Mitchell trio. Yeah, were they all Mitchells? No. Chad Mitchell was the Mitchell it was named after, and uh, (laughs) he replaced him in it, and I 
presume they kept the name because the name had some recognition to it. He moved to L.A. after dropping out of college and decided he's going to be a singer. In 1969, he put out his first album, as mentioned, with RCA. And RCA, here's an interesting tidbit that I feel like paints him. RCA did not want to put any more money behind him because they thought he was kind of a mistake, like they shouldn't have invested any money to begin with. And they told him they weren't going to give him any money to do a tour to promote his album. So he went on a DIY tour, essentially, where he was just driving city to city and would show up at clubs and tell them, hey, I'll play for free if you just let me play. They would let him like sell his records after the shows. Some clubs wouldn't even let him in. They'd just tell him it'd be okay if he plays outside the door. This sounds so, like the entirety of my music career. <laughs> yeah. John Ven- Denver was doing it 50 years before you, Sean. So I've got something to look forward to is what you're saying. That's what you're yes. telling me. <laughs> Your time may not have passed. He'd also just show up at radio stations like guitar in hand and his power play would be like, I'm the guy who wrote Leaving on a Jet Plane. And everybody knew that song at that point. So he would use that as a way to get his foot in the door. And he'd just be like, interview me or let me play some songs on the radio mm-hmm. so he he started off very like self-made and built a fan base the hard way grassroots grassroots style i like that yeah let's play another cut let's do that let's do that let's do that i'm gonna dip into another kind of like dark song i like it dip away dark this is Denver. whiskey basin blues hmm Looking for the sun In a drafty old cabin Outside a whiskey basin Another shining light And a good man on the run There's a lady back in Marabee And a reason no one else can see For him Nothing much to do tomorrow Just a matter of survival Another friendly fight In a life chock full of fun Jeremy, I've got a question for you. Yes. When did you start listening to John Denver? What is your personal 
historical relationship with this artist. I remember first hearing John Denver as a child. I think one of my parents had a tape that had, it was like a greatest hits compilation. So it was all like... Uh, the Rocky Mountain High greatest hits? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, my mom had that CD. Peter, did your mom have that CD? Or tape or eight track? <laughs> you know, she had Merle Haggard in the car. Okay. She had the grassroots. I don't know if we had, I don't think we had John Depp. We had Peter, Paul, and Mary. Okay. Tapes. Well, I was about to say that your family was harder than ours, but then you had to <laughs> admit to the Peter, Paul, and Mary. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we had CCR. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Frauds. Yeah, I feel like the reason I asked is I feel like a lot of people have a nostalgic relationship with John Denver, but I very rarely run into someone who is like a current outspoken fan of John Denver. Yeah, he's like caricature mm -hmm. um, in a lot of people's mind. And in doing the research, I was reading back on a Rolling Stone interview from like the mid-70s, and the interviewer pokes at him about what he thinks about people kind of thinking him as like Pollyanna, I believe is how he described it in the interview. And he was like, yeah, I get that all the time that I'm like Mickey Mouse folk or Mickey Mouse rock or whatever. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's just earnestness. Like this is who I am. And I think people don't like that I have a message and I'm not just repeating the same songs over and over. I'm like making music with a different message. So they have to put it in some box and that's, yeah. The box they're putting me in. I was thinking about that going into this episode a little bit because, uh, yeah, I mean, he didn't have a lot of stuff that was really dark or overly political. So, you know, I feel like a lot of the folk related musicians, so society has not remembered them as kindly if they didn't go into something dark or political. Mm -hmm. You know, like Bob Dylan never gets called cheesy folk or anything like that. But people like John Denver and James Taylor and guys that were typically more on like the sensitive introspective side it was like oh that's no one wants that anymore like that's our grandparents music etc but yeah I, I don't think his music is cheesy at all that's the thing like you said it's very earnest it's very soulful it's you don't get the feeling that he's up there like just doing a quick song and dance to make a buck or anything like this very honest music and i i kind of wonder why he doesn't seem to be remembered as well as i think that he should so i'm excited to keep doing this episode yeah, and doing the research and reading some interviews and other people talking about him, it seems like he alternated wildly between like these songs he wrote were very honest and earnest, but he seemed to also have an ego about people liking him. He like did a lot of TV specials and seemed very willing to do whatever was necessary to expand his reach as far as people hearing him, but doesn't seem like he compromised like his music. Like that part was like sacred to him, mm -hmm. not compromising his music side of it. But what he did with it afterwards, he was more than willing to just sell out as hard as possible. It seemed like. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, he was amazingly popular in his day, and it's also evidenced by the large number of his records that you can find at every vinyl-selling establishment nationwide. <laughs> that is true. He's at, And he put out so many records, and yeah. they all sold so many. So, 
were we going to comment on the uh, some of the sounds we heard on that last track? Go no. for it. You got something to say, Peter? Well, I I don't think I could hear what you guys were talking about because I believe I busted my headphones <laughs> while getting rowdy. Probably. Oh, yeah. I was asking what the instrument was on it. I'm maintaining that it was a harmonica in the background. Jeremy thinks it might have been a jaw harp. But when I first heard it, it I, I thought it was horns. It kind of sounded like that popular like Tijuana brass kind of south of the border sound for a little bit. And then the more I listened, and I was like, oh, no, it's shifting. And that's not actually a trumpet. But yeah, I thought it was interesting how the harmonica played in with the rest of in- the instruments there. It gave it kind of an interesting flavor I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Yeah, he had a few bigger named people on the record and there were a ton like 15 different musicians or something all on it uh toot Thielman was the harmonica guy i think it's thielman thielman, Is it thielman? I, I don't i don't know exactly i don't know if i've ever actually heard the name pronounced i just that's always how i thought it we, was we brought toots up on the melanie episode because he was on that album he was one of three harmonica players on that album well he's one of the main harmonica guys that you would call for sessions he yeah. uh was more of a jazz background so i think when people wanted a little bit of a lighter touch on the harmonica he was probably the a call yeah but yeah, yeah it was, he did some great stuff on there yeah, yeah he's been on bill evans dizzy gillespie quincy jones paul simon it's Billy definitely Joel. gillespie i can tell you that for sure <laughs> gillespie <laughs> whatever <laughs> no not whatever dude get it right Herbie Lovell Lavelle played drums. He played with Bob Dylan, B.B. King, John Martin, the Monkees. You got Lee Holridge doing the string stuff. And the other notable person I found on there was Eric Weisberg. Oh, yeah. On banjo. Brother uh, of Tim Weisberg. Sure. He yeah. uh, apparently did the solo on the dueling banjos. <laughs> Or one of the solos on <laughs> Dueling Banjos. I mean, I guess I'm just assuming that they were brothers because there was a popular musician named Tim Weisberg. We'll look it up maybe sure. eventually. We'll get to that yeah, some think, other time. <laughs> I think on Dueling Banjos, there's actually only one banjo and the other is a guitar. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Real trivia. Yeah. All right. I'm going to gloss over. You brought up the politics thing. So I'm going to like talk a little bit about his politics and good stuff. But then I want to like go into his bad stuff. Because John Denver was kind of a bad man, ultimately. Is he outlaw country or not that kind of bad? I think he's just kind of a bad person, honestly. But uh, here's some of the good things he did to balance out for all of you ready to send me hate mail. He co-founded the Hunger Project in 1977 to help feed people who need food. He started the Windstar Foundation which was an early group pushing for sustainable living and sustainable environmental causes. In 76, he was the face of the opposition to drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge through the 80s. He was very critical of the Reagan administration and actively worked with Jimmy Carter and was like a friend of Jimmy Carter's previously. Friend of Jimmy is a friend of mine. Well, except if John Denver's really bad. <laughs> yeah, <it> might have <laughs> nah. spoke a little too soon there. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. Eric and Tim Weisberg are not related, so I'm sorry. It's okay. I fucked up. It's okay. We're changing things here. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Revisionist history. He gave a lot of money to the Aspen Camp School for the Deaf and the Aspen Valley Hospital. He maintained a home in Aspen most of his life. People there seemed to not like him and... 
say he was like a second home kind of guy, which he was out touring for many, many years and would just be home in very brief stints. Always leaving on a jet plane, you might say. One could say that. Mm. A jet plane that he was probably flying after he bought a Learjet and flew himself around to a lot of his gigs. (laughs) He also, during the whole censorship battles, he went to court with D. Snyder and Frank Zappa. Yeah, against the PMRC and that whole thing. Yeah, Yeah, he was at those and talking about how he was getting censored because Rocky Mountain High was being labeled a drug song which he said it was not, but then later admitted in his autobiography that, in fact, he was tripping on LSD and high on marijuana when he came up with the chorus for that song. (laughs) He toured the USSR in the 80s. He was one of the first Americans to do that in like 15 or 20 years at that point. And he went there and was talking badly of them because of the whole Chernobyl thing. And he also toured the People's Republic of China as one of the first like Westerners in their touring in the early 90s. Oh, I'm mixing him up with Forrest Gump in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Valid. Let's play one more song. Just one? Maybe two more, but right now let's play one more to break it up, and then we're going to jump into the dark side of Denver. I'm teasing it the whole episode. Let's (laughs) let's hear what you got and... Come back. What song? This is maybe the saddest one on here, other than uh, Daddy, Please Don't Drink for Christmas. I wasn't planning on playing <laughs> that, but... We should have played that at our Christmas episode. I think we teased about playing it on the Christmas episode, but didn't... No, we teased about playing the, the John Mu- Denver and the Muppets Christmas episode. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to do that next year. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll play a little bit of Daddy, Please Don't Drink a little later. We'll do it right after the dark stuff. How about that? Sounds appropriate. Anyways, this is probably the other darkest one. We don't live here no more. Hmm. Make me
I heard you, Jeremy, because one of my channels is busted on my headphones. <laughs> and yeah, I got something to say. I Well, what I could hear of the string arrangement was quite lovely and understated in that song. Yeah. yeah. I, for... I would like to agree with that real quick before you have anything to say, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I did that string arrangement. <laughs> they let me step in for one. Damn fine job, sir. 14 years Thank before you. you were born. <laughs> well, not... I mean, he left Andromeda to record this album. Oh, so it was done elsewhere in another... In a different time, yeah. Spatial yeah. dimension. Yeah, yeah, dimension. you ever heard of science before? <laughs> no, because I didn't know what the Andromeda was. <laughs> Apparently, I haven't been paying much attention. All right, here we go on the dark side of Denver. I'm sure, well, a lot of people have probably heard Annie's song by John Denver. It was one of his big hits. Either of you? Yeah. I'm sure I've heard it by by name. I don't know which one that is. Annie, get your gun. We'll just go with Annie, get your gun. It was a slowed down, folky ass version of Annie, get your gun. Annie was his first wife who he married after meeting after a show. And then they bought a house in Colorado and adopted two kids. And then he promptly left on world tour after world tour on a jet plane <laughs> yes on a jet plane he left on a jet plane yes okay from his wife from his wife and kids and would come back home and she would like start telling him like their problems and he would be like oh i'm going on another tour now <laughs> And I uh, just... I'm going to need you to be here with the kids. I actually know. <laughs> I'm going to be yeah, on another tour. He described it as, you know, when he's on tour, everybody's being nice to him and excited to see him. And he gets treated like a king. And then he goes home and she just has problems and misses him. And their relationship is strained because he's never there. Well, that tracks with what you said about him kind of being willing to play out anywhere, anytime, promote his music in any way. It seems like he really basked in, you know, the, the spotlight. He, yeah. He really liked being there. And it probably affected his ability to have any kind of personal life. Yeah, that combined with both of his ex-wives plus other people around him say that he was very emotionally detached, much like his father. He, despite being very sensitive and honest and earnest in song, was not able to communicate emotionally with the people closest to him. I feel like that's not uncommon for a lot of singer-songwriter types. It's like your art being the only way you can really express yourself. Yeah. And then he promptly expressed himself by cheating on her repeatedly on tours until she found out and asked for a divorce. Then came probably the ugliest thing in his life. Oh, underneath all of this, he's like an alcoholic and apparently is a coke addict for a while, off and on, dabbling in all kinds of drugs. And... After the divorce and they're working out the property settlement, John Denver apparently becomes enraged at the fact that Annie has cut down a few of his favorite oak trees and shows up to her house with a chainsaw and oh. enters the house and starts cutting the table and cabinets in half 
and then cuts their bed in half with a chainsaw before pinning her down and beginning to choke her. Well, that entire story is just terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And it was shocking to read because of how we all think of John Denver. Yeah. And as that kind of settled on my brain and I'm wondering like, should I even talk about John Denver? And I decided to talk about him, but acknowledge all these things. But then it, I started thinking about like people don't go from nice to cutting things with chainsaws either. So it left me wondering like how many other incidents and potentially domestic violence type mm-hmm. situations likely happened before this, what he describes as his like low point. Yeah. Wow. That was unexpected. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know it was going to go that dark. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, there's, I mean, the end of his life was dark in a different way. He ended up getting remarried. And, I, I thought you were going to say rehab, which would have been a better direction. But. No, he kept attempting rehabs and self-help and some type of weird seminar training called EST and like macronutrient stuff and stuff. and yeah, he got into like every ridiculous eighties thing. Um, cause it seemed like he knew something was wrong with him, <laughs> but couldn't seem to shake it in 88. He got remarried and then got divorced in 93. Somewhat ironically, very upset that his second wife had cheated on him repeatedly, which he had done to his first wife. And then on the night of their divorce becoming official, he got a DUI. He was drinking all night and decided to drive home, got pulled over, got his first DUI. He struggled with alcohol abuse a lot in this time frame post this divorce that seemed like he went off the rails with drugs and alcohol and one year to the day later he drank a lot and then crashed his Porsche into a tree and got another DUI charge uh, his car was smashed up but he was mostly fine yeah so he got two DUI charges and then kept struggling with drugs and alcohol apparently and anger with his life situation he also he lost his recording contract in the mid 80s and could not get any labels to sign him for the life of him which with how large of success he had is kind of crazy and probably kind of speaks to how bad his uh, substance abuse problems were yeah, because that was not very long after when he was still like a number one artist kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you hear about artists reaching that point, you know, 20 years after their heyday. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, it kind of makes a little bit more sense, but that's like really early on for him to be blackballed from the industry already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you would think some label would pick him up just to like use his name to sell uh-huh. like he, silver records <laughs> he might have gotten blacklisted it could be one of those deals where the labels are like don't touch this guy yeah. he's out of control that can happen huh yep and then in 1997 he died a premature tragic death 
when he crashed his experimental aircraft that he had bought. Apparently, in this tumultuous time that all these things were happening, he sort of reconciled with his father, and they both really got into flying planes. That's when he bought this weird plane, I guess, that ended up killing him. Crashed into the ocean. He ran out of fuel in one of his tanks, and they believe was having trouble switching over to the other tank because they put the switch in a weird place or something. But they also found a loaded handgun underneath the seat of his car, and people around him believe he may have been suicidal at that point and had been struggling with various substances for years. Hmm. Pretty heavy. I remember that when yeah. when the he died in that plane crash. Yeah, it was 97, you said? Yep. That that tracks with about when I remember it happening. I, of course, remember there was the obvious joke everyone made about him leaving on a jet plane. Who would make such a joke about a song title? I don't know. I don't know. It's a sicko. <laughs> I just want the world to know Sean made that joke September 12, 2001. <laughs> You can send your hate mail to ibythatpodcast at gmail.com. That'll get some uh, attention to our Gmail account. Not that it doesn't have thousands coming in already. <laughs> yeah, well, it, we, we separated the positive from the negative. That's, uh, yeah, I feel like that really kind of covers what I wanted to get out about him. He was a complicated kind of tortured dude and i think when you listen to his sweet songs knowing all this it also sort of changes the frame of what they are for me at least to kind of like escapist sort of songs and nostalgia and you kind of can hear that loneliness that started as a kid and seemed to like run through his life yeah, there's definitely a sense of longing and sadness in a lot of those tracks, which I feel like I kind of picked up on already. But hearing all this, it just it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Interesting. Do you guys want to hear the Daddy Don't Get Drunk for Christmas song? Yeah, or, we we just... or is that how we're going to go out or are we going to talk a little more? Uh, we could go out on it. We could go out on it? Okay. G- I mean... Jeremy, do you have any other records by John Denver you might recommend for people for further listening? or In the... Like 69 through 75 time frame, I'd say all of them have good stuff on them. Okay. Personally, I feel like there's always two or three songs where I'm like, meh, kind of sure. M-O-R. But pretty much every record from that era has like some really great songs on it. Cool. You know, that's uh, not to prolong our episode here, but... I don't really recall hearing people say like, this is a John Denver song, you know, and cover his material, you know. Yeah, no, people don't cover it. You're right. I I can't think of a time when someone's done that. Yeah. I've done a cover of a John Denver song. Well, good for you, Jeremy. Thank you. Just carrying that torch. (laughs) People need to know. You're welcome, America. We're here. Well, so this is, uh, we're going to go out on... What's the lovely title of this song? It is called Please, Comma, Daddy. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. All right. Yes, I am Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I am Jeremy Ruggles. Thanks, Jeremy. See you next time. Please, Daddy, don't get drunk this.
Thank you for listening to another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Wow, Peter, I have this great news hot off the press for you. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. This just in. We're going to have our first live podcast recording. Golly gee. Golly gee. Say it ain't so. (laughs) It is so, Sean. And that's happening at the Green Door Distillery in Kalamazoo, Michigan on Friday, March 27th, 2020. Friday, Friday, Friday. Friday, Friday, Friday. Doors are at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. Show starts at 8, and it is a free event. It sure is. We will be passing the hat for you to give us a little bit of money so we can pay for our various uh, hosting costs and snacks and stuff that we need to keep this show going. And for all our special prizes and stuff we're going to have. Oh, yeah, we're going to have prizes. We're going to have a stack of dollar records, quality, genuine dollar records that we'll be giving away in exchange for minor audience participation. Curated, even. Oh, definitely curated. So once again, that's Friday, March 27th, at the Green Door Distillery in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You're going to have to use your internet device to look up the address because we didn't prepare for that much. But yeah, we'll be ready for you that Figure it night. out. Just ask Google. Uh, it's 18 plus as well. So it is a bar, but we can let a few slightly younger people in. All right. Well, we will see you there in person. Come say hi. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, Orson. Thank you, Orson. Thank you.